0: Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you, Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call on you this morning, Father, for your grace that you would open these words to our hearts and that you would graciously open our hearts to these words that, Father, we would come to a true understanding of them. And, Father, we for this we recognize that, uh, Lord, uh, we must have your grace. So we pray, Father, that by way of the Holy Spirit, you would work uh, in our hearts and our minds this morning for your great ends. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Before we really charge into Psalm 5, I... My, my goal here actually in preaching and teaching isn't so much to uh, explain passages Sunday in and Sunday out as it is to teach a person how to study the Bible for themselves. So that's why I, I will often include uh, a few caveats like I'm going to share here this morning. You know, I've mentioned over and over again that Psalms 1 and 2 are introductory to the Psalter, correct? And... I've been trying to keep that ball bouncing so that we'll see that there's, a, there's, a, there's indeed a structure to the Psalter. The Psalms are not just a collection of prayers and hymns that are just willy-nilly and just kind of gathered together, you know. Uh, there's actually a, a, a structure and I'm laboring to put this together little pieces at a time. Now Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction. Now, when we get to Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and even 7, what we have here is what we call individual laments. Has anybody ever heard that term before? Individual lament. It's a category of psalm that has a couple of components in it. One is that the psalmist calls out to the Lord. And we've been seeing that in Psalm 3 and 4, right? We saw that the psalmist calls out to the Lord. Secondly, he calls out to the Lord in some type of distress. Uh, he brings some form of complaint to the Lord. There's some type of, of distress that, that he is calling out for. We've seen that in Psalms 3 and 4, haven't we? And we're going to see that in Psalm 5, 6, and 7 as well. And uh, thirdly, uh, he calls out to God. Uh, and his prayer is really designed in order to move God to action. And we've seen that in Psalm 3 and 4. We're going to see that in Psalm 5. And then the psalm will close with some form of confidence. Uh, namely, the, Lord, or the, the psalmist will say, I know the Lord hears my voice. The Lord hears me. Uh, we'll see that component in Psalm 5 as well. So here we have an introduction. You know, we, uh, Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, then we have this series of individual laments. Now, when we're looking at these individual events, we could ask ourselves, okay, we've got Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 here. Uh, why? Why do we need, why do we have each one of these individual laments? What, what is the role of Psalm 3, for instance? What's the role of Psalm 4? What's the role of Psalm 5? What's the role of Psalm 6 and Psalm 7? Why has the Holy Spirit given us this series of individual laments? And to answer that question, we need to ask another question. What is unique about each one of these? See, that helps us, if you will, if we're going to put a little chalkboard up in our minds and say, okay, uh, what's unique about Psalm 3? And we can write a few things down. What's unique about Psalm 4? What's unique about Psalm 5? As we answer that question, then uh, we're going to be able to clarify in our minds why we have Psalm 5. What is the Holy Spirit up to in giving us Psalm 5? Well, there's some things that are actually unique to Psalm 5. I will share a few of them with you if you look at verse one. Uh, David is saying, "Give ear to my words." That's uh, not so unique. But notice, he says, "Consider my groaning." And then he says, "Give attention to the sound of my cry." And what we have here is praying without words. We have praying prayers that are in the form of a cry. Uh, Prayers that are in the form of a a groan, if you will. Uh, That's unique. It's not unique in the entire Psalter. We're going to encounter this over and over again as we go through the whole Psalter. But it's it's really unique here, isn't it? You know, the Lord is able to interpret our cries. Uh, Romans 8.26 tells us that that the Holy Spirit actually can put our cries right into words. When, we, when we're when we in such anguish that we can't even express ourselves, when we're in so much pain that we can't even put it into words and all that we can do is cry, well, the Holy Spirit's able to write that down. He's able to get it perfectly, and He does, and He presents it to the Father. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That's the first thing we notice here. second thing we notice is at the very end, of verse 3, the last line. O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch. See the word watch there? This is unique to Psalm 5. Uh, not only is David praying, and in some of his prayer, a portion of his prayer is not even able to be uttered into words. He's crying, he's groaning, under whatever this distress is. Uh, but he's not simply praying and then moving on, but he's watching. And of course, he has to get on with the business of the day. He's king of Israel. He's a busy, he's a very busy person. But in the whole course of things, he's watching for the answer to his prayer. You know, John Bunyan, somewhere in his writings, I recall reading where he repented. He said one of the, one of the, the, the leading sins of his life as he uh, walked with the Lord was that he failed to watch for the answer to the prayers that he lifted up. And I, that, the first time I read that, I thought to myself, wow, that really resonated. So how, how often we are prone to pray and then just move on and sometimes forget about what we've even prayed for. Uh, so here the psalm is teaching us to watch. And because of these lessons, sometimes when Psalm 5 is preached, it's preached really kind of like lessons in prayer. You'll hear, you'll hear sermons or you'll read sermons where Psalm 5 is a lesson in prayer. And that, that, would be a make, that would make good use of Psalm 5. But there's a couple other things about Psalm 5 that are very unique. And if you look at verse 5, now there's a somewhat shocking statement there at the last line, isn't there? We're told that the Lord hates evil doers it's a bit shocking isn't it Uh, to our ears we're going to talk about that this morning and you'll notice verse 10 the psalmist calls on the Lord to make his enemies bear their guilt to fall by their own counsels and uh, to be cast out uh, this is what we call an, an imprecation. Uh, Psalm 5 would fall under the uh, the category of imprecatory psalms. Has anyone heard that word before, that term, the imprecatory psalms? When I was in seminary, I had, I had a class that was entitled Preaching from the Imprecatory Psalms, and I had to preach a sermon from one of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, these are difficult. Um, so here we have... Some difficulties in Psalm 5, things that are unique to Psalm 5. Now on Thursday night, I was wrestling with this and I was thinking about, okay, what direction are we going to go? What 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 application are we going to take with Psalm 5? Are we going to do a, a lesson in prayer? That would be valid. That certainly would be valid. And, and the, the television was playing in the next room as I was doing this. And then there was this breaking news that in Nice, France, a man got into the uh, into a box truck and began to plow down. Uh, everyone that he could plow down with that truck and that horrible crime took place. And uh, that's when I thought to myself, you know, we should address that. Uh, we, we should address that. So, uh, but I think in addressing that, we're still gonna get a lesson in how to pray. I mean, what is a biblical response? to the things that are taking place here in our world. It seems like almost every time we turn on the news nowadays, something like this is taking place. Whether it's in Orlando, Florida, San Bernardino, California, Brussels, or Paris, and, or Nice, it seems like it's happening with greater occurrence and greater frequency, does it not? And what does, what, how, how do we respond to this? Well, the context here, we, we don't have a concrete context to Psalm 5 a, a, a particular historical situation that we can point to per se but what we can say here is that David is indeed um, really he, he is struggling uh, with the rising of evil all around him and he's calling out to the Lord uh, to deliver him that's simple enough is it not? Uh, so we see here David uh, uh with the rising evil all around him, is calling out uh, to the Lord uh, to deliver him. So let's go through the psalm with that background in mind and let's see what we can glean from this psalm. The the first point that I would really want to point out to you is that uh, David has enemies. I mean, that's a pretty obvious one, isn't it? Uh, David has enemies. Now, who is David? David is king of Israel. Who is the king of Israel? He is the Lord's anointed with a lowercase a. You, you've, you recall me saying this. He's the Lord's anointed with a lowercase a. He is a type of Christ as the king of Israel, uh, and uh, we learn already in the introduction of the Psalter that the anointed one has enemies. Look at the first line in Psalm two. You know what's it say? Why do the nations what? Why do the nations rage? Uh, Who are they raging against? They're raging against the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed has enemies. As a type of Christ, David had enemies. Now, as we point from the type to the fulfillment of the type, and we think of Christ Jesus who is the anointed with an uppercase A, and we think of his uh, earthly ministry, well, he had plenty of enemies himself, didn't he? And as we think about who his fiercest enemies were, they were people inside the church. They were the chief priests, the elders, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. They were bent on destroying him. Now, if Christ, who is the head of the church, if he has enemies then we as the members of the church have enemies too do we not We have enemies all around us Now there's something else that really should be said about this if if we're not in Christ what's the conclusion if we're in Christ, we have enemies all around us because those who are not in Christ are are bent against Christ, correct? Well, if we're not in Christ this morning, where are we at? I might ask you this question. If we're not wearing the Lord's uniform, whose uniform are we wearing? That's a, that's a rough question, isn't it? I remember thinking to myself for many years, you know, I would have never have thought myself as wearing the wrong uniform, but that's exactly what I was doing prior to my conversion in Christ. I wasn't living for Jesus. I was living for myself. I was wearing the wrong uniform. So we should ask ourselves this morning, which uniform are we wearing? Now, Not only does the Anointed One have enemies, these enemies are enemies of righteousness. If you look at the way David describes them in verses 4 through 6, and then again verse 9 through 10, or primarily verse 9, uh, he describes them as as boastful, Uh, verse 5. uh, Boastful, who are the boastful? I think it's easy on on one point to recognize who are the boastful, the one with the haughty eyes, as the Bible sometimes describes them. The boastful are those who are proud of their own accomplishments and are uh, very confident in their own abilities, whether it be their strength or whether it be their intellect or whether it be their their own morality, whatever that might be. Uh, These are the ones who the scriptures would refer to as boastful, but Uh, Before we move on from that word, I think it should be said that there are indeed uh, worshiping components to this. There's a component of worship to this. Uh, There are definitely pagan overtones to this. Uh, Self sufficiency actually is a religion in itself. Because self sufficiency says, okay, I don't need Christ, I I don't need Him. Uh, uh, My yard is cut. It, it, in fact, it looks better than the rest of the yards in my neighborhood. And my bills are paid. Uh, my bills are paid on time, and I, I, I know that some of my neighbors have red, they've got these red things on their doors every once in a while. There's never a red thing on my door. And uh, you know, uh, I show up for work on time, and you know some of them, some of the folks that I work with, they don't show up for work on time. And down the list we go. Yet there is no Jesus in their hearts. These are the boastful. That's a pretty broad category, isn't it? A very broad category. If you look with me again to verse 6, um, they're referred to as the bloodthirsty. And when, I think when we see that word, bloodthirsty, I, I think... We we think of the person that got in that truck in East France and and just began to murder all those people. And that's correct. I mean, if we're thinking that way, that's correct. I mean, that would be a correct application. But Peter Craigie uh, is very right when he says, listen, the bloodthirsty are not limited to murderers. They are, quote, unscrupulous persons whose falsehood and deceitfulness create trouble for the weak and innocent. He goes on to say that in certain cases this trouble results in the death of the innocent. You see, the bloodthirsty is indeed a larger category too. It could be that person, you know, who's committed crimes, yet because of their status, because of their place of power, and because of legal technicalities that they they manage to weasel out of, they go unpunished. Even though... Now that they're unpunished, there's new case law that's eventually going to affect the weak and the innocent. It's the bloodthirsty. Even though they may have not committed a murder. You see, it's a much much wider category. And then the deceitful, if you look at verse 6. The bloodthirsty and the deceitful. And in verse 9... Uh, we read that there's no truth in their mouth. Uh, in their inmost self is destruction. Uh, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Uh, here we see deceitfulness. And again, this is a broad category as well because the Apostle Paul uses these very words in Romans, doesn't he? The words of verse 9. Namely that their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongues. You know, we'll be studying that in the months ahead when, when we begin to study Romans and we get to Romans 3. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul is describing all of humanity apart from Christ, isn't he? So we see the anointed one has enemies. His enemies are the enemies of the church. The enemies are enemies of righteousness. And when we get to verse 5, we see that the Lord abhors and hates all evildoers. That's, that's a tough, this is a tough psalm, isn't it? I think if we got rid of the doer part, it would be easier for us. If, if it just said, the Lord hates all evil, that would be easier for us. But that's not what it says, is it? Well, we could just ignore this and not preach on it. That's the course that many take. Wow, (laughs) let's just move on to Psalm 6, okay? Uh, Enough of that. But that isn't the case. I I can't take that, you see. I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God. I can't go there. That's why I like starting from the beginning and working my way through. That way I can't skip it. It would seem odd if last week we were in Psalm 4 and then this week we we're in Psalm 6. Someone was going to say to me at some point before the service of Hey rick you skip 5? Well, we, we're not going to skip 5. And we're not going to skip this. I don't think that this phrase was very difficult for our forefathers. I think one of the reasons that this phrase is so difficult... It's because there's a dangerous message that's been preached in our land for a long time, and undoubtedly it's being preached right now, somewhere, and probably in a lot of places. And it goes like this God loves you. God loves you. God is love, and God loves you. Now, is that wrong? Is that an error? Well, it needs to be qualified. It needs to be carefully qualified. If I, Sunday in and Sunday out, preach that, then what is that saying to the person who wanders in here, who is involved in a vocation that is indeed an evil vocation, or who is playing f- fast and loose with sin in their lives, uh, who, uh, or who, who is living in sin? What am I saying to that person? I'm saying to that person, and they hear me say, The Lord loves you. He loves you no matter what. In fact, He loves you unconditionally. What am I saying to that person? That person's going to sit here and they're going to say, Wow, that's great. There's no real motivation for that person to repent, is there? Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. No, it isn't. When we think about God's love, we need to make some distinctions. When we think about God's love, typically in theology, we divide it into three important categories. God's love. God loves uh, all people in one sense. He loves all people benevolently. You know the word benevolence? That means He gives. It's a a giving thing. You know, the month of uh, June, and really so far in July, the weather's been just drop-dead gorgeous, hasn't it? Especially June. we had so many wonderful June mornings and and June evenings. God gave that weather in this valley to those who love Him, and He gave that weather to those who don't love Him equally alike, didn't He? And in that respect, God is loving. He is He is He is, he is pouring His love out uh, to all of creation, isn't He? So we talk about God's benevolent love. We can talk about God's beneficent love. In other words, uh, He gives benefits. That was my reasoning in going to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. For God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, doesn't He? In in a a farming society, uh, rain is vital. Rain is important. And God causes rain to fall down on the unjust the 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 unjust farmer as well as the just farmer. Let me put it another way. The rain falls on the farming family who loves the Lord and the rain falls on the farming family who doesn't love the world or love the Lord. See, we see there's two aspects where we could say, yeah, God is pouring forth. God is love and He's pouring forth His love upon uh, all, all people. We could say that in, but we need, to, we need to be very careful. But the problem is this dangerous message isn't talking about that so much as it's talking about the third category, which is usually referred to as the filial category. Filial means of or pertaining to a family. And the fil- this filial love pertains to salvation. Is it true that God loves all mankind this way? The answer is False. There are indeed conditions. What are the conditions? Would I be standing here this morning if I hadn't repented of my sins? Would any of us be here this morning in Christ Jesus if we didn't believe in Jesus? You see, we can't preach John 3:16 to the exclusion of John 3:36. Well, let me ask you. Just let me just ask you a question. What does John 3:36 say? You're not going to find it on a billboard in this culture. I'll share with you why you're not going to find it. John 3.16 we know very well, don't we? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believed in Him should uh, have eternal life, should never perish, but have eternal life. But listen to verse 36. Jesus, in the same context just a few verses later, says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. Now somewhere down along the line, we've got it in our heads that we we should skip this stuff because if we preach this stuff it's going to it's going to drive people away and let's preach John 3:16 let's just cool it about John 3:36 and let's preach John 3:16 and what has been the what has been the outcome of that how's that worked out for the church in the United States the pews filled up through the 20th century they did they filled up at one point but many of the pews were filled with people who were Christian in name only. And the damage that that did to Christianity, we're, we're, the, the Christian faith in the United States, we're living in it right now. See, when we get in our heads that we've got a better way than God, we're in trouble. Eh, I don't like preaching these kinds of messages any more than anyone else. And listen, when Jesus, goes, when Jesus descends down into Jerusalem, when He descends down the Mount of Olives, you know, uh, to, to enter into his week of passion. And he looks on the city of Jerusalem. What does he do? He weeps. I could easily do that right now. Because our culture is playing fast and loose with sin and crass unbelief, doing whatever they think, doing anything they want to do, anything that comes to mind. And they're being told that God loves them. Don't worry about it, it's fine. No, it's not fine. Jesus told us in the passage that we read this morning that we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't that what He said? And the author to the letter of Hebrews says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is not fine. This is not good. God is good and kind to all creatures. But He hates evildoers. Who are the the evildoers in this passage? They are those who will refuse to repent. We don't know who they are. We don't have access to that information. All that we know... Listen, today's evildoer could be tomorrow's saint if they receive Christ Jesus and repent of their sins. But if they don't do that, if they don't do that, They're going to experience the wrath of God for all eternity. That's the message that we... You see, that's what we've got to be on about. We've got to warn people who are around us of that message. But instead, we've watered it down. And we've watered it down to the point where it just doesn't have any ability to save any longer. That's why this verse is so shocking to us. And I want to show you something else about the psalm and then a couple more things and we'll wrap this up. Let's get back to the context of the psalm. David sees the rise of evil all around him. He's complaining to the Lord about this. He's bringing this, the complaint, if you will, to the Lord about this. Uh, He's speaking of the deceitful and bloodthirsty who are all around him and let me remind you that the individual lament has a couple of components to it. This is why it's really helpful for us to categorize these psalms. He calls on the Lord. He raises his complaint or his distress, whatever it might be, and then this this prayer is designed in order to uh, to move God to action. Now, what is what is David doing in verses four to six? He's stating really, what is already stated in Psalm 1. He's saying, listen, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Now, take a look at Psalm 1. Look at verse 4. Verses 1 through 3 are talking about the blessed man, the one who by faith has been made righteous with the righteousness of Christ Jesus, And then Psalm 4 speaks about the rest. It says, The wicked are not so, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 5, The wicked will not what? They're not going to be able to stand. And secondly, they're not going to be able to enter into the congregation of the righteous. You see, we've already got that in Psalm 1. And David is taking that, he's taking that truth of Psalm 1 and he's using it in Psalm 5 as an argument for God to move. Lord, move. Move. Move to action, Lord. You're not a God who takes, who takes uh, uh, delight in all the wickedness that's going on. And this wickedness is not going to stand. Uh, it's not going to be able to stand in your courts. Uh, move to action. Do you see what David is up to here in verses 4, 5, and 6? You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He is using this. He is calling God to action to do something about the rising of evil that's taking on a place. As we watch the news and we see these horrible things taking place, this is a good psalm for us to pray. This is a great psalm for us to pray. So so you see, we really are learning how to pray here, aren't we? Uh, That's why some who preach this psalm will, will use it as a lesson in prayer. I think we're getting a lesson in prayer here. Now, some people might say, well, Well, you know, you you Christians are really self-righteous. You know, how can you talk like this about the rest of the world? How can you say these things? Well, who made you so perfect? Who made King David so perfect? What makes you think you're so perfect that you can talk this way? That's a valid objection, by the way. Until we get to verse seven, look at verse seven. David says, "I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house." Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. David doesn't say, I through my own personal righteousness is going to enter into your house. David says, I through the abundance of your steadfast love. David is looking forward to to the Messiah. He's looking forward to Jesus. He's resting in the love, the very love of God. David is a sinner like the rest of the world who needs God's mercy. While the rest of the world is rejecting that mercy, David is clinging on to it. He's clinging on to it for dear life. And we would do well to do the same. And where is this mercy and steadfast love seen? The New Testament reader says, Oh, that's at the cross. And now the cross begins to make sense. Oh, you mean to tell me this God who hates evildoers? Who hates evil... He came in the person of Jesus Christ and walked around with us? That's what happened. But it even gets better than that. He, he actually runs to the cross to take the punishment for that evil that He hates. That's abundant love. That's abundant mercy. And that's the only way we're going to escape this is by clinging to Jesus isn't it? So when someone says, why well, aren't you self-righteous to talk this way? No, I'm not. I might be self-righteous and in many areas of my life may I repent of it. But when it comes to this, no, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm trusting in Christ. Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. And He offered that life up on, his, on the very altars. Of his justice. To come to save who? Who does he save? He saves those who embrace him in faith. And repent of their sins. Meaning turning away from their sins. What happens to the rest? What happens to those who reject Jesus? They're left to represent themselves in the court. And see we can't leave that part out. When we tell people that God loves unconditionally, we're leaving all of that out. David concludes the psalm with verses 11 and 12. He says, Let all who take refuge in you and rejoice, and let them ever sing for joy, and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Has it hit two? I... I, I I trust that it's hit you. The joy of your salvation. I trust that it has. How about the joy of salvation of the one that's sitting next to you? I and mean, as I look at Chris and Becca, you know, Chris can sit there and he can. Just to know that his wife is in the faith. You know? As that joy hits you. We have friends. We have people that we love. It should motivate us to pray for them, shouldn't it? But they would experience the joy too. Some of us have friends who have already passed through the doorway. Sermons like these make us think. It always makes me think when I hear a sermon like this or I read a sermon like this, I, I think about my grandfather. I think about others who have passed and some of you are thinking about them right now too. What do we do? What do we think? In these kinds of situations, I'll tell you what I think. I think that God is way more, way more benevolent and way more beneficent and way more loving than we could ever imagine. And I trust in His character there. At the end of the day, we do not know what goes on in a person's heart all the way up to the last time and the last moments of their life. So as we think about that, uh, let's just trust in the character of God, shall we? But our work to do here now is to be praying for... Those who we know are not in Christ, and for those who we suspect may not yet to be in Christ, because this is serious, isn't it? The rising of evil all around us is taking place, because unbelief is rising all around us. That's why it's happening. Amen. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that you'll comfort us, O Father, with your word. For these messages, these psalms are difficult. They're difficult to preach. They're difficult to hear. They're difficult to digest. These are hard things and hard sayings. O Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to strengthen us through these messages. That you'd be pleased, O Father, to if need be, wake us up. And oh Father, please give us the faith and the grace not to skip these things. Oh Father, in our in our own wisdom we've have so many times thought, Oh, I better not share this. If I share this, then I'll I'll run somebody off or I'll Father, give us the ability to do this in love. And Father, keep us from thinking that way for Jesus spoke of these things often and all the time. He spoke of a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, Father, we have thought ourselves better than Jesus. We thought, well, we'll skip all of this. And indeed, yeah, we probably will have more people sitting here on a Sunday morning, but where will we be? We're not going to be more faithful. Well, Father, help us, we pray. Father, give us grace and strength to to preach the truth and to not hide things to not be deceitful in any way, but to do this in love and to do this with tears, Father. For we see that Jesus, he did it with tears. And Father, I think that when people, when people see us preaching this with tears, I think the tears mean probably more than the words. So Father, it is with tears that we receive this message this morning. Tears, of, um, tears for the condition of, of lost souls and tears for the joy of salvation which we've received from Christ's hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.